Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. And we're back with Tom Keefe. So, Tom, we did a recent podcast where we had a guest who fell ill and couldn't come in. So we just kind of winged it. And it was basically funniest or most outrageous stories of things that have happened to you in trial. So I want to pose that question to you. What's the funniest or most outrageous thing that has happened to you or that you've seen happen in a case you've tried? Or maybe not even necessarily in trial. Well, I think the funniest, and I don't know whether this will make the cut or not, but do you know that when God created us, you know, he gave us you know, a human body and he gave us a lot of muscles. And the funniest thing that ever happened to me in trial is, is that my sphincter muscle got fooled because it is supposedly the smartest muscle in your body. And it's the one that can tell the difference between a solid, a liquid, or a gas. And then one time in front of a jury in the past, it, well, it got confused. I mean, it thought it was a gas and it wasn't, and that was an issue. So I would say that that was funny. Uh, at I mean, the time? It, well, at the time, it, I, I was on a roll, John. I don't even, I may not have even realized it for five or 10 minutes. I mean, I was really going. Uh, I and I realized, I thought, yeah, there's, a, there's been a wardrobe malfunction here. So that is certainly one of the funniest. And obviously that's a go-to funny because everybody knows that farts are funny until they're not, which <laughs> this one was and then it wasn't. Yeah. You know, that's a big trial. It's not as much fun now because of 213 or 220 or Rule 26. I yeah. mean, our final pretrials. I mean, there's nothing left. The only chance that you have to create any drama, of course, it's is on, cross. on, on cross-examination. Right. Beyond that, it's all scripted. And I find that maddening. And I hate it. People now do mock juries. We don't do focus groups per se, but, you know, you guys turn this on to this guy, so we just write up the case and send it to him, and he has 50 people do it. Well, by the time you go to the trouble of writing that up, you've essentially done your opening statement, right. and yet you don't start trial for six weeks. And in my era, I didn't do that. Now, you got to remember, I practiced by myself for 25 years. So when you talk about Zoom and you talk about remote depositions, I got off the road in 1989. We had four kids. You know, I'd have to be on the road all the time. I could have an expert I was taking in Philadelphia at 9 o'clock, and I had another one I was going to take in L.A. at 2. I mean, I couldn't be in both places. So I started doing all of my depositions by phone in 1989, and that allowed me to get home at night, allowed me not to miss the kids' ball games. And so we did that forever. We did that by phone forever. Is that, that I started it. that probably in the mid-'90s time. Yeah. I would took everything remotely. Exactly. Everything. And now with Zoom, of course, everybody does yeah. that. But you're right, John. And I would be chastised for it, including by guys in your circle. And they would say, well, you need to go because uh, you can't see the witness. I had cases, Tim. And the first time I ever knew what my expert looked like is when I put him on the stand. I'd never seen yeah. the guy before. I know what he looked like. And I did it that way. But my attitude was, I'm not going to fly 2,000 miles to prevent my opponent from cheating and handing some note to the witness. And it's I've, running up your client's expenses. Well, every besides time that, there's right. karma. I just always believe is that if somebody's going to cheat and try to hand the witness a note, that at some point during the trial, God's going to get even with her and it's going to sort itself out. Right. And there is the expense and there's time. All that time in airports and waiting lot. And I, now, I did mine by video. I didn't do the just the phone, but I would do video conferencing. We right. put the video conferencing equipment up 2,000. And right. you could see them. 
Yeah. Yeah. You and, could you could, and you could see him. I always thought also, I enjoyed doing them by phone because then people would chastise me for it. And I said, I got news for you. I got a lot more experience asking questions by phone than this witness has answered. And you can do some really cool stuff, for example. Now, doctor, are you familiar with Harrison's on internal medicine, which, of course, is a learned text that we don't see anymore in book form, but we get it on the screen? Yes, I am. Doctor, I'm going to read something to you from Harrison's. And then you read him a quote. I said, do you agree with that? And he said, yes. And I'll read him another one. Do you agree with that? And he says, yes. Then at that point, I'll say, well, let me ask you if you agree with this statement. And he doesn't know if you're reading it from the book. And I just yeah, make, I so and I make <laughs> something up that's the whole case. And I say, and do you agree that reasonably prudent doctors in circumstances such as this one evaluate a heart attack must do? And then I just put my theory of the case. Well, he thinks that, you know, Harrison said it. Now, I did attribute the first two to Harrison. And it's just the third, third one. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. And if he agrees with it, and that's the point, I don't think that's cheating because he should agree with it. It is true. But he's not going to agree with it if you say it, but he'll yeah. agree with it if he thinks Harrison said it. You could always do that about the phone. You can't do that. You can't do that when people are seeing you in real life. I did a video conference, of, and it was a, for trial, and it was a witness who had been deposed. He'd been deposed before multiple times, and the guy couldn't tell the truth if it helped him. He just was all over the place. And so what I did is literally every question, I had a site page line of a prior depot that I could pop up on the screen. Right. And I did that about two dozen times where he's, I don't know, you know. And so finally I got to that point in the deposition where I read something a little more significant and said, do you agree with that? And he said, well, I don't know, but I'm sure you've got, <laughs> I'm sure you've got me saying it exactly somewhere. right. And then the rest of the depot was just like, I go, you want me to show you something? No, I agree with that. No, <laughs> he, was, he, that. he was housebroken. That's yeah. the whole idea. Housebroken is a good way to That's put it. That's the whole yeah. idea. That's what you try to do with a witness. You try to housebreak them. And the beauty is if you can housebreak them in the deposition, that's better because jurors may object to the way, you to the way you're housebreaking them yeah. in person. Right. Then once you have the admissions, you just, as soon as they're on the stand, well, you agree with this. And if they say no, you pull up the depo. You open right into it. You know, right. I'm wondering too, as you, I'm thinking about this, that's a real benefit to having a discovery deposition. Absolutely. And we don't have that here. And you got to be careful where I, I have the same thing where we've taken witnesses, especially in the auto product cases where they've been coached to not answer. They're experts at not answering questions, not really providing any information, not committing to anything. And I will ask the question literally 10, 15 times and get something, their speech or, you know, whatever it is, but not an answer to it. And that video was going to be played to the jury or can be played to the jury. So I'm always a little aware of that. And because of that, you don't want to be an asshole or be too overly aggressive. You, you can't be. And you also have to remember that jurors tolerance for aggressive lawyering it's also affected by who the party is. I have found that jurors are more tolerant of me being aggressive cross-examination of a paid expert because the idea is yeah. this guy's getting paid to come in here and take this abuse and so you could take it as opposed to their tolerance of aggressive behavior towards an employee. A civilian. And, well, a civilian. But, a that's the, but, but John, and to your point, I've dealt with that too with the products people. And it's obvious, you know, they'll designate uh, Joe Smith as the person most knowledgeable about uh, seatbelt fasteners or tensioners. Joe Smith doesn't know anything about seatbelt tensioners at all. He has been designated as the person most knowledgeable. Yeah. He's the guy who's most knowledgeable about talking not about the company line yeah. on yeah. this. Yes. It's not yeah. about he's the most knowledgeable about the topic. So what I try to do early on is make that clear. 
to establish to the jury, this guy isn't most knowledgeable on the topic. This is the person who they have schooled to testify. And I'll sometimes ask them, say, now, you know, what teaching, what schooling have you gotten on testifying? Because while some of it may be attorney clients, some of it isn't. Some of them, they send them to witness preparation people. We had a GM case earlier this year, and this guy, I hadn't deposed him before, but at a certain point, he just kept giving the speech, giving the company line. And I think he hadn't really testified before, and I think he took it a little bit too far with what they were asking him to do. And, you know, I put on the record, and I literally just got up and left. I didn't go off the record. I just got up and left, and they called the office and wanted to know where I was. And I said, I'm not coming back. You know, we'll go to court, and we'll finish the deposition. And they said, well, can you come? I said, no, I'm not talking to anybody. So they can do whatever they want. They can stay on the record. So long and short of it is a couple weeks later, I get a call from the attorney admitting that he wasn't answering the questions. And so I knew going back, he still wasn't going to really answer the questions. So what I did is I prepared 25 or so true-false questions. And it was a Zoom depot. And it was just a true-false, basic statements that I couldn't get him to answer without giving a speech. And it was so effective because the jury could see it. That's all that was on the screen. That's a good idea. And they're looking at this simple question going, why in the hell? You know, because he'll go on and on and on. But while he's blabbing about stuff, they're looking at this question. Did the vehicle pass this test? And they're just looking at it. And finally, after two or three times of trying to avoid it, he just said, yeah. And I had the video tech circle the T or the F on it, and it worked fine. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, you know, I don't know necessarily that the conditioning that you had to endure by going through the first deposition, whether or not that might not even work without the conditioning. Yeah. But I do think that, and I think that one thing that so many lawyers and younger defense lawyers haven't tried any cases or don't get to trial very often, and they somehow believe and they persuade their experts to believe that as long as they don't give in to anything, that makes them effective. It doesn't. I mean, if a witness is evasive, the act of being evasive after a while is going to undermine their credibility. A lot of witnesses, we had a witness, may he rest in peace, Bolter Kelsey. Oh my goodness. Yes. I used to call him John talked about Bolter. I called Voltron the Magnificent. Bolter was a perfect expert in the first place. He was. He was a mechanical engineer. Bolter testified for me and others on every case because his position was very simple. It involves mechanical engineering. All issues of product design and warning, in essence, involve mechanical engineering. And so we just got Bolter. And Bolter would come in, and he would be such an agreeable witness, and he would answer our questions, and he would just slam them, and he seemed so matter-of-fact, and then it would come time to cross-examine him. And you couldn't get under Boulder's skin, and, Boulder, and they'd say, well, isn't it a fact, Mr. Kelsey, because, you know, we tried to call him doctor, but he was really Mr. Kelsey. Isn't it a fact? And they developed a list for him. Isn't it a fact that you've said that lawn darts are defective? <gasps> Is it, Isn't it a fact list? that you said Washington? Yeah. Alphabetical it? order. It was the only, yeah. it was the list. I called it the cocktail list. And Bolter would just sit up there and go, yes, sir, I did. Yes, sir, I did. And Bolter wouldn't fight with them on cross. And he would just give them just back enough. And at the end of the day, he left a favorable impression on the jury. And, you know, one of my beliefs about expert witnesses has always been in causation defenses. I always believe that fat CVs and causation defenses impress lawyers more than they impress jurors. Mm -hmm. Boulder had a one-page CV. Boulder testified forever. And we always had Boulder keep a list of cases he turned down for us. Now, 
Yeah. I'd send him some really stupid cases. So he gets that rejected. But, uh, 15 cases. You know, Tom, I'm sitting there with a big <laughs> smile on my face because he is one of the handful of people you just feel good being with him. And, and same with the yeah, jury. And I was a young lawyer when I, I mean, just started doing plaintiff stuff when I started using them. And I always had things too damn complicated. I mean, I had them so complicated and eight different theories. And he would come in and I'd meet with him and he'd say, you know, John, the old kiss, keep it simple, stupid. And he'd say, what if we do this? And I'd go, holy cow, that's perfect. Yeah. He'd limit it to one thing or two things. Right. And I probably literally used him 40 times. He did a great job every time. Every time. And I think part of it is because if you get an expert and you ask him to come in and say two and two is five, it ain't going to work. But if you have him come in and actually say two and two is four, everything's okay. But I used it in direct. I started using it in my direct when he was at trial. I would say, now you've testified. Let's go over some of the stuff. And I'd go A, B, I didn't go through all of it. Right. And I would have him describe what the defect was in those. But you hit it right on the head. He was a, such a likable guy. He never got flustered about anything. I really enjoyed spending time with the guy. He was a great guy. Yeah. And he was a pilot. And, now, uh, I wouldn't get on his plane with him because he kept telling me the story of how he landed without his landing gear. Well, you know, sometimes you have to be intrepid. I was partners with Bruce Cook, and I flew with him for years. I didn't know how to fly the plane. He had a history of, you know, quadruple bypass. And, of course, he'd been, as Tim knows, he's been road hard and put away wet. Sometimes you just have to make the leap, John. You just have to uh -huh. say to yourself, he's not going to have enough insurance, but death will be quick, and it's only going to hurt for a second. He said, well, John, the fact that I did that means I'll be more careful. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Yeah. So Boulder was a great witness, but the point being that a witness who's personable and who doesn't fight with you, just gives something back on cross. You know, but when you take the positions that you've alluded to with the General Motors people or the Ford people or the other defendants who have been prepped to be witnesses to testify mm -hmm. in a certain manner, that doesn't help their credibility. The times I used experts, I still use them, but I tell them, I say, look, don't be a lawyer. The other guy does this for a living. Don't try to outlawyer him and don't think that you have won simply because you haven't conceded obvious points. If you haven't conceded an obvious point, you've lost. So, Tom, let me ask you this. I teach a trial ed course at SLU Law School, and our first class is this afternoon of this semester. What would you tell a first class that are in a trial ed class trying to learn persuasion and how to present evidence? And what's two or three things I can tell them? First thing I would tell them is, is that are you in this class because you have to take it or are you in this class because you want to be a traveler? And then what I would tell them is that uh, we need to understand what the definition of a trial lawyer is. A trial lawyer is not a person who is a mediator and mediates all of his cases. A trial lawyer is not a person who, you know, does other things in efforts to avoid trial. I would tell them is that if you want to derive maximum benefit from this course, then you should take it with an attitude that everything you're going to be taught, you are going to use someday in a courtroom, as opposed to showing people kind of that you know what you're doing and then they'll pay you in a mediation. I think the first thing I would tell people if I was teaching a trial ed course is, is I would say the first thing you need to do is to get your mind prepared. You need to start embracing a notion that uh, you know trial is not only something that you should not be afraid of, it's the most fun you'll ever have with your clothes on. Great, I agree with you 100%.
anything I can do for my good friends at St. Louis U, right? So it's been a rather as the dean. You dean. were the dean for I was, seven I, months. I, I was the dean. I quit on TV. <laughs> it just didn't work. Me and academia, we just did not understand each other. I more of the suit tie kind of stuff. Well, it's the, more the suit tie kind of stuff. It's more the uh, you know you wouldn't say should be had a mouthful kind of stuff. I, you didn't uh, goose anybody over there. <laughs> I didn't goose anybody, but I will tell you this: I got in trouble because, and I still believe this. I still believe this. When I was the dean, I was asked to be the dean by Father Biondi. Now, bear in mind, you know, I did it for free. Mm -hmm. Number two, as I was practicing law, I was a solo practitioner at the time. And I'm agreeing to come over here and be the dean. And the faculty hated me because they had just fired somebody who was one of their own. And then Biondi was going to really show them who was boss. He was going to bring over the most irreverent, non-academic <laughs> to be the head of the law school. So that was the plan. And, of course, I took to it like a fish to water because I was having fun. But I started realizing, and I still believe it now, so that there's no misunderstanding. Law school is a ripoff. Yeah, they're I not mean, teaching you the right thing. Not only are they not teaching you the right thing, Tim, is that it's a ripoff. People don't understand. This is when kids should get their first introduction to how unfair life is because in the first place, is that they're charging you forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year to be taught by a person who has neither a law license, unlike situations when John's teaching, of course, or a teaching certificate. Yeah. I mean, the teachers don't know anything, not only about what they're teaching you, $50,000 a year or more, a year. And you know what they need to do when they want to make another $50,000 at a law school? They add a chair. And then suddenly there's another $50,000 and they get their money up front. The kid has to sign up and pay a student loan. And then the kid has got his thumb under that student loan for the rest of his life. Unless, and here's where you get your lesson into what life is all about. If you're at the top of your class, what don't you have to pay? Student loan. You know why? Because they give you a scholarship. If you're the among the, the unwashed masses, what do you have? A student loan. What do you get if you're at the top of the class? You get the high paying job that would allow you to make enough money to pay the pay big on the student loan. Yeah, right. What happens if you're one of the unwashed masses? You're not going to find a job that's going to even allow you to pay the big, which delays your ability to get married and have kids and buy a house and everything else. But all the while, that law school's got that money and you've got these professors and they're writing these timely law journal articles on topics where you don't even understand the content <laughs> from the topic. For example, the rights of the disabused in the Monrovian, Monlovian court system. Who cares? But that's what they do. And so I started saying to everybody, I said, and it really didn't resonate well with the faculty, I said, this is a ripoff. And when you have the dean say it, and I still believe it. I still believe it. And I believe that what should happen is, is that first of all, you need to have a lot more adjuncts. Like, you know, people that practice law who will come in like you're going to do your course. And to your point, Tim, preparing people. But there's a better way. We have in this country and have had, and it's a disgrace, a justice gap. Because we have legal aid and legal aid is only able to provide legal services to maybe 10 or 15% of the people who need them. Yeah. We have a perfect solution. Lawyers are allowed to be lawyers because the Supreme Court gave us a license. It's not a right, it's a privilege. Therefore, the Supreme Court of Illinois, Missouri, anybody can condition that privilege in any way they want. And so what if we had a situation where kids went to law school for a year or a year and a half in a traditional way, although taught by more adjuncts, so that they don't have all that debt? Let's just give them two years because the third year is, is useless as two tits on a boar hog. 
And then what you do is, is that in that third year, what do you do? You have to go do a residency, an internship. And what we have to do as lawyers, we have to take them in or you don't get your license. So, for example, you have a kid who wants to learn how to do trial work. Well, then the size of your firm is whatever the size it is. And the Supreme Court says, all right, Cronin, Simon, you have to take in four lawsuits, but you have to do 20 pro bono cases. Well, then suddenly the kid is learning how to lawyer. The kid gets the feeling of what it's like to lawyer. 20 people who don't have access to legal services get a lawyer. It's a win-win for everybody except two, the law school, because the law school is not going to get another $50,000 that they can shake out of that kid in the third year. And so that's what I was preaching. And of course, unfortunately. How'd that go over there? It didn't go over well. I mean, uh, and, and so then they- At the uh, same time, you bought an American Bar Association membership for every single member of the student body, right? I don't remember that, but if I did, I, I did. I think that you did. Yeah, yeah. And what happened was, is that obviously I kind of talked a lot too much and I say things, <laughs> I'm kind of unfiltered. And so they managed the faculty to gather some greatest hits of some things that I had said or allegedly said. And then I remember a guy from the TV station came over to the office and he said, hey, you know, you're alleged to have said these things and it's causing some outroar. And I knew what the faculty was doing. And um, the guy said, did you say that? I said, you know, I don't have a distinct memory of saying any of those things, but every one of them sounds like something I would have said. <laughs> yeah. And then at that I can point, neither confirm nor deny. No, no, I, I, I say, you know, it's likely I did say it. I just don't remember. And he said, well, what's your reaction? And I can honestly tell you is, is that I resigned the job of being the dean of the law school on live TV in the moment. I said, you know. I think he would have quit. Uh, the guys think he's getting the scoop, and he goes, oh, "Yeah, I think we'll too." Uh, and I did. It was one of those crazy things. So yeah, no, me and academia didn't make, but I still believe that to be true. Yeah, I think it's unfair. And then these kids are stuck with all this debt. But thanks for giving me an opportunity to recall uh, my memories at SLU. I'm glad that your relationship with them has remained warm and fuzzy. It has. Please send them my love. And I will. Tell them that I wish that the United States Supreme Court had not decided Daimler versus Chrysler because there was nothing I enjoyed more than suing St. Louis University <laughs> in St. Clair County. And that has become a more daunting task for us. But tell them not to worry because we are going to chip away at this jurisdictional defense. Keep working at it. And they'll be back and I'll be waiting. Well, Tom, we want to thank you sincerely for coming and being a guest on our podcast. Well, I enjoyed it. As I said, it's a lot of fun, but uh, so long. This has been another episode of The Jury's Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>